Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep Singh and with me today is Henry Shah, CEO of Zoom Info. Thank you, Henry, and welcome to the podcast. A good point to start is with a short one-minute intro of Zoom Info for those who don't know about the company, and uh, you know we can take it from there. Thanks, Mandeep. It's great to be here with you. So what Zoom Info does and what Zoom Info is, is we're a revenue operating system. And what that means is that we provide data, technology, and insights to sales, marketing, and recruiting teams that allow them to target their next best customer, it allows them to engage with their next best customer, and it allows them to do that at the right time with the right people within a company. So at the core of all of the software that we build for sales and marketing professionals is the most robust data asset of 150 million company, I'm sorry, 150 million business professionals at 100 million companies worldwide. That's data that's getting constantly updated. So you know who the buyer of HVAC maintenance is or who the buyer of information security is or cybersecurity or ERP at different companies. And then you know when they're in market to buy your particular products or services. We've surrounded that data asset with, with software that allows you to engage with them through email, through a sales motion, by giving alerts to salespeople who own the accounts in Slack or in Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics. It also allows you to build audiences of B2B individuals to do display advertising or social media advertising too. And so if you're a seller or a marketer and you're looking to engage with new buyers, those are our customers. We have today over 25,000 of them. We're publicly traded on the NASDAQ under tick, ticker symbol ZI, and we have about 3,000 employees across the world. Great. Thank you. So look, uh, when I uh, hear a data business, the first thing that comes to my mind is how are you curating the data? Like what is it that allows you to kind of create a mode around a data business? How did you scale this business? Let me talk about the data. I think the, the, the piece to think about with the data is we've also built this really robust software and application layer on top of the data. And so, but the data asset, you know, when we first started, I found the company in 2007 when I was in my first year of law school. And the way we actually started was really through brute force. We were doing internet research. We were calling into companies to understand if people still work there. We're collecting data in a really manual way. At one point, <clears throat> at one point, we had 300 researchers who were collecting this data for us and getting it into an online platform that, that we sold an annual subscription to. Over time, what we realized was that model didn't really scale and that we needed to apply technology and software to the collection and curation and ultimately the decisions to publish or not publish data needed software around it. It couldn't just be, a, you know, an army of, of human researchers gathering, collecting and making decisions on that data. Today, the data asset comes primarily from two places, the raw data, um, and we'll say three places. One is we have a freemium network. And so people can get limited free access to Zoom Info for, in exchange for the contacts in their email system. That mechanism, we see 100 million contact records and contact data points a day through that freemium network. And then secondly, 
uh, a subsegment of our customers shares data from their CRM or marketing automation systems that we cleanse, validate, purge, or purge, and then send back to them. And then in that process, they also share that data with us. They share the exhaust data with us that allows us to be to be able to make better decisions about what to publish or not publish in our platform. So for example, if you integrate your marketing automation system with Zoom Info, one of the things we get is the exhaust data that comes off of all of the emails that you're sending. So for example, an email bounces or an email is successfully sent. We capture that data along with the data from these different networks. And the third, the third piece of data is we're also just have built indexing engines that cover the B2B web and are gathering information. All of that data goes into a centralized machine learning algorithm that makes decisions on what is right or what is wrong. So one of the issues that we solve for our customers is historically the data inside their CRM systems or their marketing automation systems is, is not accurate and it's incomplete. And so we can't just go pick up a CRM, a piece of data from a CRM system and then instantly publish it into our platform. Instead, we pick up this raw evidence from a CRM record, raw evidence from the freemium network, raw evidence from the exhaust network. And we may see Henry Shuck shows up in five different in five different freemium networks email contacts. He's also on the web as the CEO of Zoom Info. And his email through one of these marketing automation systems is being delivered and has confirmed in the last 30 days, that may be enough for the machine learning algorithm to say, okay, let's publish Henry Shuck as the CEO of Zoom Info and maybe unpublish him at his last role because we've seen all of this new key evidence about his new role. And so those three networks come together and we spend a lot of money on data science uh, at Zoom Info. That's the core piece of how we're making those decisions about what to publish, what to extract, what not to extract. That's key in our motion. We have 16 AI and machine learning patents. Uh, we have 22 PhDs on staff, 81 master's degrees. Where they're all focused on data science so and machine learning. Do you think you have network effects in your business? And if so, then how do you think the business will evolve over time in terms of you know, the process that you just described? I absolutely, I think there are network effects in the business. I think first, if you look at the freemium network, we have over a quarter uh, million contributors in that freemium network that are providing us this data in exchange for free access to Zoom Info. In order to build that type of community and attract people to come into that community, you have to have a really outsized presence on the And so that network of people providing us that data makes our data better and better every day. And we're seeing more signals from that group than, you know, any other, than any other way you could gather data. And then in the customer contributory network, you know, we have 25,000 customers. A large portion of them are sharing that CRM and marketing automation data with us that we're cleansing and validating and sending back to them. But as part of that, we're also gathering then a tremendous amount of raw data that we're using to make these decisions in the algorithm. Without those two key sources, those two key networks of information, we just wouldn't be able to build as robust of a data asset. And that data asset is at the core of all of the application layer that we're building. And so the network effects that we get around the data allow us to build a really robust software and application layer above it. Because ultimately, 
marketers and salespeople, they want to do something with that data. They want to activate it either through email or ad campaigns or marketing automation or by alerting a salesperson. And so we've built a tremendous amount of software above that data asset that allows them to activate that data. So it looks like the scope of your software is much broader than a CRM system. So would it be fair to characterize that you're actually disrupting the next-gen CRM system from somebody like Salesforce? So I don't think about it that way. I think about it like, number one, I think sellers and marketers and companies, they want really valuable insights inside of their CRM systems. And so we plug in that data and insight in, in, in Salesforce and Dynamics and HubSpot and so that you have a much more holistic view of your accounts and then the people who are making buying decisions of, at those accounts within your CRM. Now, the second thing that I would tell you is what's really interesting over the last decade is that there are dozens of activities that a typical seller or marketer does in their day-to-day that never goes back to a CRM. They're happening outside of the CRM system. That might be a sales automation system that lets you set up how you are going, the cadence with which you're going to reach out to a potential buyer or a company. That might be conversation intelligence that records and analyzes calls. That might be an audience builder that a marketer uses to build an audience for B2B display ads. There are dozens of key activities that a company has to do every day to go to market that don't happen inside of CRM. And that's the universe that I think we have the opportunity to build next generation software for. Whether it disrupts CRM or, or, or not, that's not our you know, goal or aspiration. I think our aspiration is to give you a coordinated platform to do all of these activities that today are happening in a dozen different point solutions without data at their foundation. We want to give you one platform where you can architect a go-to-market motion and have data be the foundational layer of how you make those, those decisions. Got it. So, I mean, so far we have talked about the business and, you know, what exactly you do in terms of that application software layer. Let's jump into, you know, the business model a little bit. And when, when investors talk to you about, you know, how you are monetizing this unique asset that you have built, I'm sure they're talking to you about, you know, the subscription model. And, and so maybe explain a little bit around how you think this will evolve, whether you're going to continue to charge a subscription fee for the software you are providing? Is it per user base, consumption based, and what kind of adjacent markets or add-ons can you add to the software over time? Yeah, so today our software is sold on a subscription basis. And so our customers buy an annual subscription to one or many of our product set. We've actually grown, we've grown the product set both organically and through M&A. Since 2015, we've completed 12 different M&A transactions. Uh, when, we're, when we see a really interesting software asset that can be enhanced with our data and that we could integrate back into our core platform and sell to our core buyers, we're especially interested in those types of software assets. And so... What we've been able to do is to surround, you know, in, tw- in February of 2019, ZoomInfo was simply a, a data company. There was no software or application layer that we were selling. Today, you know, we have close to a dozen different software products that we sell on top of that data that are built into a core revenue operating system platform. 
And so we have this opportunity to, and each of those products gets sold as a subscription on top of the core Zoom Info subscription. And so a customer may come to us originally, and we have a, a pretty robust land and expand motion. They might come to us and say, hey, I'm really just looking for data on my total addressable markets. And so I want company data and contact data. So they may buy that from us. That's how we land the account. And then they come back to us and say, okay, I've got all this really great data, but I don't have a systematic way to action it. Do you have, you know, is there technology or software that can help me activate this data? So our engaged sales automation solution fits that. So now you can take our data and actually activate it. They may come back to us and say, hey, I'm building these audiences and integrating it with my marketing automation system and my CRM. But what I'd really like to be able to do is actually do display advertising and targeting of these individuals on the display ad networks. So then we can sell them that and that increases ASP and ACV for the customers. And so what we have today is uh, the, the monetization motion is around annual subscriptions, but we're adding, we're innovating organically and doing M&A around new products and solutions that we're able to sell directly to our customers as well. And so that's growing the net retention rate of our, of our install base. We went from 108% net retention in 2020 to 116% net retention in 2021. And we have a business that's kind of relatively equally balanced between enterprise, mid-market, and SMB. And our, our software can be sold to everything from a Fortune 10 company to a small one or two-person staffing firm or a pecan exporter in Georgia is a client of ours. And so when you have a large SMB base, you know, uh, 116% net retention is truly best in class. Got it. And, and so since you mentioned about, you know, data and privacy, I can't resist asking GDPR and, you know, the whole regulatory kind of landscape, how it's evolving. Anything in particular that I, I guess is unique to your business when it comes to how the regulations have affected how you capture the data or curate the data? Yeah, great question. I said I founded the business when I was in law school. I did finish law school and I became a lawyer. I'm licensed in two states. Not my core job, but it doesn't hurt when you're evaluating regulatory policy on data privacy. It gives me a unique advantage. But we take data privacy and our leadership around data privacy very seriously. And I'll tell you a couple of things that we do. Um, Number one, we instituted what we call a notice and choice program. Actually, let me back up. Sorry, Mindy. I think the key thing to think about when it comes to data privacy and Zoom info is the fact that the data that we collect on individuals is limited to information that you'd find on somebody's business card, their name, their title, their phone number, their email address, where the core office might be. We don't profile people. We don't track their behavior. We don't track them from system to system. It's simply static information that you find on a business card. That information across all of the regulations that have been passed from a data privacy perspective is regularly singled out as non-sensitive information. If you look at Canada's PEPIDA, it says if you're using business contact information for B2B efforts, that's not sensitive information. If you look at California CCPA, there's a similar construct. If you look at the draft legislation in Washington or Nevada or Virginia or Singapore, similar construct. 
business contact information when used for business to business purposes is not considered sensitive information. The GDPR breaks it out by a legitimate interest. I think legitimate interest six says that if you're using this data for direct marketing purposes, there's a different construct of rules that applies to you. Now, one of the things that we do, which nobody, in, nobody else in our industry does, and we've done this for the last four years, is if there's anybody whose information we've collected, we go out and give proactive notice to them that we've collected their information, and we give them an opportunity to, to see that information, review it, update it, or have it removed from our platform, all in an automated way. You can click on the privacy policy link at Zoom Info. You can go right to your profile and adjust it or remove it from our, from our system. We're the, first, we're the first company to do that today in our industry. We're the only company that does that. It keeps us far ahead of, the, of any regulations that are on the books or that we can anticipate. The, the best example here is, Mandeep, if you think, let's see if you can come up with it. If you think about a private company that collects the most sensitive information on you and then sells it to third parties, what do you come up with? Well, I mean, I, I think when I look at, you know, the internet landscape and social media and, you know, all these companies, they, they were collecting a lot more information than they are right now. But clearly, I think there are concerns around how much does Google know about me or Facebook know about yep. me. And, yeah, it's actually more simple than that. It's the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus collect the most sensitive information on you. They know every time you've been late on a payment, they know how much you have in student loans, they know any mortgage you have, anytime you've asked for credit, and then they sell that data to third parties who then use it at the most impactful moments in your life. When you're trying to get credit to buy a house, to get a cell phone, to get a credit card, that information that a third party collects on you comes to bear in those most important moments of your life. Now, at some point in the 90s, Congress said, hey, we need to start regulating those companies more than we ever have been. And so they wrote what's called the FICRA, the FCRA. What the FICRA requires those credit bureaus to do fundamentally is one, give you free access to your credit report every year. Every year, you get free access to any information that they collected on you. And then number two, they need to give you a, the, the FICRA requires they give you a forum to object to information that may be erroneous. And then number three, the credit bureaus must respond within a certain amount of time to those, to those objections that you have. Now, when I think about our data, the least sensitive data that exists, it's hard for me to imagine a regulatory construct that actually regulates the least sensitive data somehow more severely than the most sensitive data that gets collected by the credit bureaus. And so when you think about giving you access to your information, giving you the ability to update it or re review it or, or remove it, we already do all of those things for the least sensitive information that exists, your business card information. And so we feel really good about the construct we put into place. We recently hired Simon McDougall. He was, he's our chief compliance officer. He was the number two, the number two executive at the ICO in the UK, which enforced the GDPR across, across the UK and Ireland. And so we're constantly trying to press forward and be a leader when it comes to data privacy in our space. Got it. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So maybe, you know, looking at the recent market volatility and, you know, the software space in general has been affected in terms of the valuation multiples, just like when you're talking to investors, how are you kind of explaining to them, it, like in terms of how much visibility you have 
in your business when it comes to sustaining this kind of top line growth or in general, how are you explaining to them the visibility that you have? Yeah. So first, obviously it's uh, everything is on an annual recurring subscription. And so we have a lot of visibility into, into our numbers and the, and the way that we forecast for the year. I'll tell you. And so visibility is not so much uh, an issue. Even during the pandemic, you know, we were a business that you would have thought would be, would struggle in the pandemic because it's, you know, it's sales software. And are you investing in your sales team during a downturn? And, and companies did, they invested behind their sales teams in a downturn. They continue to invest today. We've built more pipeline coming into 2022 than we've ever seen in our business. And so we feel really great about the demand environment. I'll tell you the other thing that's really unique about the Zoom Info business is that it's, we ran uh, 39% margins in, in Q4. So it's, we run high free cash flow profitability. And so what you can see is a business that's not only growing top line 59%, but doing it incredibly efficiency, incredibly efficiently with high free cash flow margins and and real real profitability. Actually, just on that point, so the COVID nineteen pandemic. I mean, clearly it accelerated digital transformations, and we have heard that from pretty much every company out there. Did that help Zoom Info, especially in terms of you know the profitable growth that you talked about, or the overall kind of momentum in the business? Yeah, I think the answer is that it it helped and it hurt, and they basically offset each other. What we saw immediately after the pandemic was many of our enterprise and mid market companies sat on their hands, and they didn't they didn't know how to make a decision or move forward, and so we did experience a slowdown kind of immediately as the pandemic set in, and then as we came sort of out of 2020, we saw sort of a return to the demand environment that we were seeing pre pandemic. And then since then, we've kind of just built on that demand environment, continued to build pipeline and customers. But I would say there was a headwind and a tailwind. One of the things I did, one of the things that, that we did at the end of Q4, there was a lot of noise in the market or Q1. There was a lot of noise in the market about whether there many of these software companies saw a pull forward in demand that they weren't going to be able to sustain. And so we went back through and looked at all uh, a whole bunch of data to try to understand whether or not we saw anomalies that were related to anomalies in the funnel that were related to the pandemic. And so you looked at, look, were you generating way more pipeline than you ever had before because of the pandemic? Was it converting in a different way? So all of a sudden, because of the pandemic, did you jump from 10% conversion rate of opportunities to 30% conversion rate of opportunities? We looked at a number of metrics throughout the sales funnel to try to understand if we saw something anomalistic as a result of COVID. We didn't see anything that would make us think that we saw a special bump from the pandemic or that we saw a pull forward. Great. So we are in the final segment of our podcast and it's comprises of some rapid fire questions. So you can keep your answers concise here. What is one technology or trend that you are most excited about over the next one or two years? What is one technology or trend that I'm really excited about? I think that companies have turned the corner on understanding how to use data to run their their operations. And then I think that companies like Snowflake and Google BigQuery and AWS have now delivered technology for them to take advantage of the data that they're collecting. And so I imagine that the businesses of tomorrow 
will be much more data-driven than the businesses of today. Okay. Any misconceptions that you think the market or investors may have about Zoom Info that you want to clear on this podcast? Sure. I would say Zoom Info was very much a data company in 2019. And today it is much more of a software company with data at its foundation. Over the last three years, we've developed and acquired a significant amount of go-to-market technology that we've integrated into our platform. The data creates a strategic advantage, but it's just one part of what our customers buy from us. Got it. And uh, so, like, this is more of a general question, but you can uh, answer it around Zoom Info. Like, what do you see out there that gives you peek into the future? And uh, what could go wrong in terms of the assumptions that you are making? So I think that the biggest thing that we see is that there's a next generation of sales professionals and marketing professionals who have grown up in their careers using data, using insights and having consumer grade technology to in their personal lives and they expect it in their work lives as well. And so one thing that gives me great confidence about the future is that these next generation leaders will not be okay with doing their jobs in an old-fashioned, old-school, non-data-driven way. And that sets us up for, you know, a tremendous next decade. Got it. And lastly, anything else that we haven't covered, which uh, you think is relevant for somebody who wants to invest in Zoom Info or just kind of use Zoom Info? Sure. Yeah, like I think the biggest one is we sit in the middle of a $70 billion total addressable market that's single digits penetrated. Everywhere I look, every conversation I have with a customer represents tremendous opportunity for our business. And so this isn't a business, the vast, vast, vast majority of the clients we bring on are pure white space. We're not displacing an existing vendor. It's really white space within our market opportunity. And so there's just a huge total addressable market for us to go after. We've built the best team of engineering and product and sales professionals to go after it. And so we feel like we're in the early innings of a really big story. Great. Henry, thank you so much. You guys are at the cutting edge of enterprise software and, you know, the convergence of data and cloud. Congrats on all the success. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the podcast. 